This might be the one of the most known texts in all the Bible. We're actually going to go back to verse 5 um, just to kind of pick up context. Uh, it's uh, part of the Sermon on the Mount, of course, uh, and he's addressing ways of misusing prayer. You know, we just saying, give us, give us clean hearts, you know, give us clean hands, give us pure hearts. You know, the clean hands is kind of a metaphor for uh, what we just commemorated at, at communion, you know, the, the forgiveness, the reconciliation. The pure heart is kind of what you do after that. Um, we're seen as pure, but are we, the, the Sermon on the Mount kind of shows us what it looks like if you have that. What, you, what are your goals? What are your ideals? You know, we had that in the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the pure in heart, so they will for they will see God. Probably because it's only the pure in heart that want to. And most importantly, because it's only the pure in heart that can <laughs> because of God's holiness. So that's what this is what about. It's just kind of the, the Sermon on the Mount is how do we act since we are now redeemed? Uh, because it's not just an accounting transaction. We do that. You know, uh, when were you saved? When did you believe? And that's all good stuff. But what are you doing now? Um, don't base your salvation on a past decision. Base your salvation on the one who died for you, the one who calls you, the one who indwells you by the power of the Spirit, and how and what you value now. That's really what matters, right? Because that will change how you act, you think, and what you say. So, verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So first of all, he addresses this, and we hit this uh, last time, you know, hypocritical prayer that the Pharisees sometimes showed, the misuse of the purpose of prayer, from the glory of God to the glory of self, and that's kind of what they're talking about there. And you see how it's changed, you know, it's, if you think about Jesus' practical advice, if you go into an inner room and it's just you and God, there's nobody to impress. And I don't know if you knew that, but no matter what you do or how well you do it, you'll never impress God. You can make him proud, but you're not going to impress him. He's like, well, I've never seen that before. No, that's not what we're trying to do. So you can see it's, and we got to be careful with this. It doesn't mean you can't pray in, pray in small groups. We pray in corporately. It's all that, but you got to be careful of this. But then really what he's saying is this verbose prayer. This was we see in the, the pagan shrines, especially in the places that Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Timothy went uh, during their missionary journeys. The misuse of the nature of prayer from, from the real and personal approach to God, which is what we're given in this prayer that comes up, and the mere repeating of words. And we've probably all done this, right? Um, I could probably, you could, we could probably sit here and I said, what do you usually pray before you eat? Mine seems to be quite similar to the last time I prayed when I ate. It sometimes depends on the context, I guess. Um, and, that, and that's okay, I think, and we'll look at that a little bit. Um, what was that one we used? The Superman prayer? Remember that one? 
Thank you, God, for giving us food. You can, if you want to know more about that, uh, we'll talk about that later. But, you know, you can do whatever you want. It's, it's, again, praying, I think praying with just repeated words is probably better than not doing it at all. But, again, what does it mean? You know, we don't do that to people. Let's not do that to God. You know, really just empty phrases, which is what the Gentiles do. They babble, one of them says. You know, that's where that word comes from. Um, the idea of just getting the words out and thinking if I, if I, if I pray longer and with more you know, verbose words that God will be more impressed. And again, you're not going to impress him. So that's kind of the pagan way of prayer. When you pray in the NLT, don't babble on and on as people of other religions do. That's really what this is saying. It was like if you put in your time, if you can babble for 15 minutes, the gods have a lot better chance of answering your prayer if you only do it for a mere 10. Uh, we got to be careful with that. And I hope that's not why you come to worship, is to impress God, because he's not impressed. Uh, you come because we get to, you know. I always try to change that when our kids were little. It's like, we don't have to go to worship. We get to go to worship. <laughs> if you can really feel that way, it's, it's, it's kind of good. You know, you know you're supposed to. That's not hard. Uh, but wouldn't it be nice if we want to? So is Jesus prohibiting repeating prayers? Should we always have to come up with a new phrase? Well, I don't think so. Uh, you know, even in his own life, in Gethsemane, we see he leaves them again. He, he goes away and prays for the third time, saying the same words again. So, you know, I, I mean, I think it's, it's about sincerity, not about the phrases you use. Uh, but isn't it interesting that right before the prayer that we often repeat, we're told not to repeat? Isn't that Interesting. So we have to take this in context. And again, we'll talk, it doesn't mean you can't do it, but you know as well as I do, if you keep saying those same words over and over again, they just kind of fall. Like, well, I think I said something. And it, it becomes a, we do this with songs. Uh, I remember there's songs in, from the 70s and 80s I'll listen to now, and you, you know the words, you know the tune. And then I'm like, I wonder what that means. And then sometimes you find out what it means. You're like, I don't think I should be singing this, <laughs> you know, because you, you just didn't know what it meant. You're just singing the words. Well, that, sometimes we do that with prayers. Um, we have to be careful um, that we're not just, that our mouths are engaged where our mind is not. And that's where we can get into some trouble. So what he forbids is any kind of prayer with the mouth when the mind is not engaged. And then in 6.8, I've been talking about this the whole time. This is kind of the crescendo of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the purpose, the main, one of the main phrases. It's the beginning of 6.8. Do not be like them. Don't act like secular people. Act like you're a believer. Have different goals. Have different purposes. Think differently. Even hopefully feel different. Do not be like them. Now, we're supposed to go out to them. I mean, if you want to take a card, take it to them, people who don't know him. But don't be like them. We don't, we don't have the same audience. We don't have the same reason for being alive. You know, them, if it's, in this case, Gentiles, non-believers, pagans, whatever you want to use it, secular people who don't believe in Jesus, don't follow, there's some nice people who are them. You know, some of my best friends are them. But don't be like them in the ways of what is mainly to, because, you know, we're supposed to all look out for number one. It's just, who's number one? 
you know, in the, in the pagan idea, it's you. In the Christian idea, it's God. You know, so yeah, I think you're all supposed to look out for number one. So what's the Christian way of prayer? This is just one of the prayers we have in the Bible. It's not the one I use the most. I use the one in Colossians more because it just seems to fit our culture more. But So prayer should not be seen as a meaningless collection of words. I like the term, uh, one of the guys I listen to, word salad. You know, you just kind of put words out there, you know, a little word here, a little word there. I don't know what it means, but it sounds cool. Uh, nor as a means to our own glorification, but as a true communion with our Heavenly Father. And calling God Father is a privilege that we don't otherwise have without the Son. That's kind of implied here, but we find that out later in the epistles. But I put true communion there for a reason, because I've heard people say, well, prayer is just a conversation. Well, your prayers must be different than mine. Um, It's not just a conversation. If you go to lunch, I don't know, where are we going? Anybody want to vote? won't matter. We'll go where I want, but (laughs) I'll have to find out where you went last week. But, uh, you know, we go to eat, you know, and yeah, that's a conversation. But if we think about this, if you're with somebody and the conversation and they're the only one talking, how's that working out? Mm. Or if you're the only one talking, is that really a conversation or is that just more dictation? And when I pray, I seem to be the only one talking. I think prayer is not really mainly a conversation, but it's a response. It's got a conversational quality to it. But even here, we're not told, say this, and then God will say this back. God's already spoken. He can speak again. If God, I mean, maybe that's happened to you. Wonderful. But to sit there and say it's a conversation is kind of not really the way it's even presented in the Bible. The Holy Spirit guides us. There's, there's, you, you'll get thoughts. You can get all that stuff as guidance. Yes, that's all there. But it's not a conversation. We, don't, we shouldn't look at it that way, just a conversation. Just talk to him like we did at the, sermon, or the, the children's sermon. Just, you know, just talk to him like you would have been anybody else. Don't do that. He's not anybody else. Talk to God like you would any other perfect being. How's that? Why do you think we're given this stuff? So we know how to talk to God. This is what honors Him. So just be careful with that. Again, there's times in the Bible, I'm sure it can happen to all of us, at some, but the expectation is know the word, you'll pray well. He's already spoken. And most of the time when we want Him to speak again, it's because of a decision that doesn't ultimately matter anyway. So Jesus' prayer can be used as a pattern and a form, a pattern of this is what is important in a form is this is kind of how it should look. And it doesn't have to be this way. I've asked this in, in Bible study, and if you want to call out, you can call out if you want. But when you pray, how do you normally start? How do we know if we've gone from normal me talking to you to now I'm in prayer mode? What do we do? We even do different, you know, when you pray, what do I, what a lot of people say, what do we do? Well, bow your heads in prayer, right? Well, why do we do that? You know, you bow your head. It's like, well, what am I doing that for? I thought he was up. What am I going down for? What's the down? Respect. You know, why do you close your eyes? Well, if I started praying and I'm looking at all you, I probably won't be thinking about God. I'll be thinking about you. So that's another reason we close our eyes. You don't have to. Why do we do this? It's, it's another respect thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a kind of part of that bowing thing. You don't have to. You know how they normally prayed in, in Jewish times? 
It was like this. You see that in the the the, the pagan prayer, you know, the, the the and and the Pharisee prayer, the, the the parable that Jesus gives. We had a few weeks ago. So that's is the way you can do it, whatever way you want. I don't really care, uh, but just know who you're talking to. That's kind of what we're trying to to get. The idea, the essential difference, really between pagan and Christian prayer is the kind of God we pray to. Personal, loving, and powerful. So if you start praying, if you think, oh, this is the God who even Moses was not able to look on. This is the God who Isaiah came into some sort of visionary presence to and got on his belly and said, get me out of here. This is the God we're allowed to approach, so we should do it with reverence, but this is also the God that says, come to me, all you who are weary, heaven laden, I will give you rest, and you can speak to me. So it's, it's both, you know. So the first step in prayer is to focus on God. <laughs> that's not nice. You're like, well, I never thought of that. <laughs> New information you get in the sermon. Yeah, that's it. The focus is on God. So when you pray, how do you start? You know, he tells us to start our Father. Well, you can do that. I mean, I think that's good. And we pray to the Father through the power of the Spirit because of the Son. In the normal course of business, God is not your Father. <laughs> He's your judge. He becomes your Father when you get the grace. So that's kind of implied here, too. So what are we trying to do? We, we, you might, some people, we had this in the Bible study, some people say they start with his Lord. Is that okay? I think it's fine. This isn't kind of a synonym. Jesus, people pray to Jesus, I suppose. Um, maybe even pray to the Spirit, I guess. This is kind of, the, the Father might be the way to start for the most part, but you can, I think if you pray to the Son, the the Father will agree that that's okay. But the audience, who are you praying to? That's why he says go into your inner rooms because you're trying to, it's a focus idea. Because it is hard sometimes, isn't it? I'm, I mean, I've done that before. I don't think I did that last night. But you're kind of like, Lord, you know, I'm praying, I'm going to bed, and there's the things, you know, I got a little app that helps me, you know. All y'all are on this app most, for the most part. And you just pray for people, and it helps me focus and all that kind of stuff. But I've done this before, praying away, and then, like, at 3 o'clock, amen. <laughs> it's like you forget the end that you've, and I, that's bad, right? That spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Um, but that's it. You know, how do we, there's no prayer in the Bible that ends with amen. Did you notice that? How did they know when they were done? Put your hands down. You know, focus on the people. That's how you did it. So we say amen, which is just fine. Um, however you want to do it. So put God's priorities first, and then our own needs will be in tune. That's the idea. How do I know how to pray? I've heard people say, well, just start talking. I'm like, no, I go read some prayers through the Bible first, and then you can start talking. Because <laughs> first of all, you have to know God a bit before you know how to pray, because how do you know how to pray or even worship a God you don't know? You know, think about somebody, you go out today and you meet somebody you've never met. How do you start the conversation? You probably don't start, how's the wife and kids doing? You don't know if they're married or anything. You start with kind of superficial stuff, right? But what if you know them really well? Ah, you might shake their hand, give them a hug, and then talk about, how's it going? How's, this, you know, how's the business going? All that kind of stuff. Well, when you know God, your prayers will get better. It's really not that hard. And how do you best know God? Well, let Jesus take you by the hand and show you. And he keeps saying, as it is written, as it is written, as it is written. It's almost like he thinks we're supposed to read and study 
our Bible. So this Lord's Prayer, we're going to read it. And I said, I, I don't think the Lord's Prayer is probably the best way to call it because this, this is a prayer Jesus would never have to pray. Forgive us our sins. He didn't commit any. Protection from evil, he didn't really need it. He's got that. He's God. So the disciples' prayer would be better. Should we start a petition? Would any of you sign it? <laughs> I think it's fine to, to call it that. But it is for a disciple. It's for who it's for. So let's read it. And, and, and you see why do we, and, and we special, especially stumble over verse 12, uh, is how if you ever do this together, uh, which we're going to do at the end, if you're wondering. We're going to end with the Lord's Prayer, and you all can say it if you want. We're going to use debtors just to get you there, because that's what my translation says. Uh, do we want with that? If you don't like that, get your own mic. The, uh, but that's where we mess up. Does it translate to debtors, sins, or trespasses? Well, they're all just, just translation of the same words. So pray then like this, and it's a like. It's that simile, you know. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So that is the prayer that he gives. Now in the Luke's version of this, and I don't know if it's a different time or the same time, the disciples come to him and say, teach us how to pray is kind of interesting because these people had the whole Old Testament and had that book in the middle called the Psalms, which is pretty much all prayers. So did they not know how to pray? They're Jewish. They didn't know how to pray the way he was praying. Something different about that. And that's that our Father kind of comes into it. So, and you can also view this through the Ten Commandments. It's this first part is dealing with our connection with God, you know, holy be your name, your kingdom, and the second part, eventually gets her with each other, you know, forgiving each other's sins, helping each other with protection from evil. So, but you may not know this, but all of the elements of the, of the disciples' prayer <laughs> is found in Judaism. This is not unique to Jesus. Uh, this is a prayer that a lot of them would have known a lot of. Now, he only takes pieces of it, and he does switch it a little bit. But we have a lot of this. The first words, our Father in heaven, open many Hebrew prayers. Uh, the difference we're seeing here, and I think that's what the disciples were looking at, is that Jesus seems to have a much more intimate relationship with who he's praying to than the people, the other people. And, th there's a, and that, obviously, we find out why, because he is God himself, and there is something going on there. And so, it's very Jewish. Uh, and this next two lines, they... Of this first portion of it, of that synagogue prayer, it was a synagogue prayer known the known as the Kaddish, which means to sanctify, uh, to sanctify His name, to make His name holy, to make His name respected. You see this in Isaiah twenty nine. For when He sees His children, the work of My hands in His midst, they will sanctify My name. It's almost the same thing there. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. So this idea is already there. May your name be kept holy. Jesus even said this in this high priestly prayer in John 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That same thing. We're supposed to keep his name holy. So what does it mean to keep his name holy? Do we have to cant it? And, you know, I, mean, I suppose you can. Holy means to be set apart, uh, different. Uh, 
So God's people could make His name holy by living rightly. This is really what it comes down to. That's why it's in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. How do I make God's name holy? Act like you're part of the family. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. If you love me, keep my commandments. And if you live wrongly, then you profane his name. And we've got to remember the word, the, the word name. Name in the Bible is not just a, hello, my name is Yahweh sticker. It's character. It's who he is. It's essence. When you say you are making his name holy, you're making his character holy, his, his being holy, you're, you're setting apart that in your life. So it's not just a label, it's, it's a person. Um, so we have to remember that. And then it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so how does that happen? How do we get heaven here? You know, in the background is Revelation 21, when you... The, Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem comes down, the new heaven and new earth become one thing. But right now, that isn't happening. I mean, you, all you have to do is get on the internet, right? Does it seem like heaven? There's pieces of it. And what we pray is that what is important in heaven and what honors and keeps God's name holy in heaven starts to become a part of who we are, as much as it depends on us. So through the church's witness, now and in the future until Christ comes back. This is a prayer that he wants. But what does that tell us about? Should we be pessimistic or optimistic about our faith? You know, that's out there now. We've got, I don't know if you knew it, but there's a war in Ukraine right now. Uh, does that look like the kingdom of heaven? No, but there are pieces of the kingdom of heaven going in the middle of that war right now. You, you can hear about it if you read the right articles and hear from the right people. Um, but we, we know we have. How do we do this? Well, we start living our own personal lives in the ways that honors God, and there's a little bit of heaven there. And that's what this is about, personal connection with God and each other. In Psalm 145, we already have it. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. That sounds almost like a New Testament verse, doesn't it? That's always been a big deal. So Jesus prays that life on earth will begin looking more like life in heaven. And we get a little bit of that, right? A little bit of that in life. A little bit of that in our experiences. You know, Jesus, in very early in Matthew, before the Sermon on the Mount, he comes on the scene after his temptation, and he begins to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew's pretty much all about the kingdom. You get to Matthew 13, you get the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. What does it look like? A pearl of great price, a woman with a lost coin, all these different things to help us understand what the kingdom is. But what also, if you have a kingdom, what do you also have to have to make it a kingdom? A king. Well, wait to this next week. What was on the sign above Jesus' head? King of the Jews. You know, that's, who's your king? You know, well, who do you follow? You know, he's Lord, Savior too, but he's also king. King is the one you follow. And then give us today our daily bread. It shifts from you to our or your, plural, to our, plural, our needs are placed secondary, but they're not eliminated. And that's what we have to be careful with. Uh, we don't want to spiritualize everything. 
This acknowledges and thanks God for our daily necessities. Um, for he's not only a God of the future, but a God of the present. And how does he do this? We, we lift up our day-to-day dependence on God, as in Proverbs 30. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying and give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. That's kind of the same thing that he's talking about. And how does this work in the normal course of things? I think C.S. Lewis said it best. He said, God instructs us to pray that he will give us our daily bread, but it doesn't mean we might not have to plant a bit of wheat to get it. It was always both us and him. You know, we got farmers in here. Which one of you can make the seed grow? can make the DNA of the corn or the bean to somehow sprout when you get the right. We can't do that. Can you make your own corn? You know, we can make it grow, but we're just kind of sticking it in the ground. It's not like, I was going to say it wasn't rocket science, but I've seen some of the farm equipment. It's getting close. <laughs> but, it, you know, it's the idea that we still give thanks, right, even though it, it, we do our own thing to get it started. Uh, it's both, but also sometimes it's other people, and that was always the system, and that's where we've kind of messed up, I think, in our own culture. You go back to Deuteronomy, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you should not go back and get it. It shall be for sojourners, for the fatherless, for the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner. For the fatherless, for the widow, when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you get in a pattern here? Uh, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Then how do they get it? They have to go work for it. We'll just kind of leave it there. But it's mercy to let it there, but it's also dignity. You're an image bearer. You have worth. You can work. You know, and I think it what we never want to do in any church program is take away the dignity of the people or make, or make them dependent. That's never what the Old Testament did. It's what, you know, give us this day our daily bread implies that we're going to work for it if we're able. So, And then to the part that we talked about at the communion. Forgive us our debts, trespasses, sins, as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us, who have indebted against us. Sin is a, never, uh, uh, is, a, is a debt we can't pay. This is the whole thing about the gospel. But it can be forgiven through the cross. That, you know, we don't, this is pre-cross, right? It, it, you see that. This, the Sermon on the Mount, as we look at it, we have to look at it back through the lens of the cross. They had to wait to that happen to try to understand it as, as good as we can. And as you get to forgiveness, let's read 14 and 15 right after this. Now, the prayer is over, um, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So does this mean that our forgiveness is dependent, from God is dependent on us forgiving others? Well, not really. I don't think we're saying that the forgiveness of others earns us the right to be forgiven, but that God forgives only people who are truly repentant, and that the best evidence of true repentance is forgiving spirit. You know, you remember, you can go to later in Matthew, the guy who had a 
great debt to be forgiven, and he could never pay, and then his master forgave it. You remember what the guy did? He went out and tried to get five bucks from somebody who owed him, and he, went, he threw him into prison. And that's kind of what's going on here. He should have the spirit of mercy and of grace. It's commanded that we forgive others. And we have to do that, that forgiving spirit. Because it, what's implied here is if you don't have a forgiving spirit, Jesus is saying you probably really haven't repented. You probably haven't really been forgiven because you really aren't following what I say. And if you love me, you're supposed to keep my commandments and I'm telling you to forgive. And you can say you don't want to. I don't care. I don't think, you can take it up with him, right? What color is the letters in your Bible right now? Mine are red. Not that the black ones aren't still important, but this is Jesus talking. If you don't like the fact that you have to forgive people, then take it up with him. He's the one, it's very clear, but he is calling our own faith into, into question if we're not willing to forgive others. Somebody said it would be easy, right? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, we're going to finish up here quickly. This is a hard one if we don't understand it. I'm going to give you what I think it means. It's a little hard because does God tempt us? You know, help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. It's the idea of does God tempt us to do evil? And then is that do not lead us into temptation. Does he normally lead us into temptation? Well, James says that no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Well, I guess this was pretty easy. So it can't mean that. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. Um, Jesus' prayer asks the Father to help us not to be led into temptation, but who's doing the leading? May we not be led into temptation. God's not the one doing it. Well, who is it? The evil one or those following him? Yes. Well, it might just be you. <laughs> you know, the three things that the, the world, the flesh, and the devil, those are the things. That, and how do I know which one? I don't know if I know which one. Does it make any difference? How do you know when you're being tempted? When there's thoughts of doing something that dishonors God, right? Let us not sin when we are tested, I think is what Willie, what, what they're saying, what Jesus is saying here. Rather than let us not be tested. You're going to get tested. It doesn't, you know, turn on the television, that'll test you, right? This prayer is not so much that we will overcome temptation, but that we will overcome and avoid it. If you can't handle it, turn it off. If you can't handle it, don't go. If you can't handle it, don't look. <laughs> if you can't handle it, don't taste. If your hand causes you to sin. We had this, right? <laughs> cut it off. If your feet cause you to sin, cut it off. don't avoid it, but know that he's there to help us overcome. If you're going to overcome sin, you're not going to be able to do it by yourself. That's what we pray. Help us not be led in temptation by the very one that you're protecting us against. And that's a promise. So, we can certainly pray hypocritically or mechanically or both. That can happen any time. 
But this prayer is a divine alternative. It's, a, it's God-centered. It's scripturally focused. It comes right out of the Old Testament. It's a good Jewish prayer, obviously a very good Christian prayer. It shows us that Christian prayer should always, always be a preoccupation with God and His glory and not us. So we think about prayer. How do I become a good prayer? I'm still working on it. I'm still practicing. I'm still trying to do better. Because anything worthwhile in life probably takes some effort. And sometimes it is hard. And if you struggle with that, let me know. Let others know. Let elders know. Let friends know. Some people are really good at this. A lot better than I am. Thanks be to God that that happens. Let's bow our heads and pray this prayer together. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are debted against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.